Welcome to Matchless Lesson 2, Part B, the early years. Uh, we're going to look at some of this, this information that we have already discussed again, some of which our author discussed and some of which we discussed in our small group. But this time we're going to look at it through the lens of time and specifically for waiting in real time. So waiting is an uncomfortable sensation for me. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind being patient if it just didn't take so long. Um, my daughter could tell you a bit about being impatient. She is literally pregnant with anticipation with her first child, and she has been counting by trimesters and months and then weeks and days, and pretty soon it'll be hours and even minutes. So you know that feeling, that anxious and eager and impatience to know how it's all going to turn out. And I think impatience is something we can all keenly feel in this time of pandemic, in this isolation and restriction and this waiting for things to change, waiting for a cure, waiting for a vaccine, waiting for things just to be normal, waiting for the world to change. And that is not new. Back in Jesus' time, his people feeling oppressed and downtrodden were also anxiously awaiting for the world to change. They were awaiting a promised redemption God specifically gave this promise to the people, and they were waiting. And in that gap of time between the promise and the fulfillment of promise, they, like us, have been somewhat anxious, impatient, and uncertain about what exactly they are waiting for, how it will unfold, and who it would be. So it was logical that many were waiting at that time for some sort of political resolution. They held out a nationalistic hope that a rescuer would set up a righteous reign and a return to power, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? As the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us, there's nothing new under the sun. And so as we approach this topic of Jesus' early years in real time today, we're going to mostly be sitting in the book of Luke with some references to Matthew. I'd like you to pay attention to the references of time in the words of scripture that we visit. In my notes, they're all going to be underlined. I'm going to emphasize them. The emphasis will be mine. But be listening for the time markers. There's one key distinguishing element in the Judeo-Christian scriptures in regard to time compared to some other world um, documents like the Quran. Uh, for us, the scriptures are written in real time about real people making history his story. So we have several authors over time giving references to leaders and so forth that help us understand that these things happened in real time and they can be increasingly validated by both historical and political references, the leaders and so forth, um, historians like Josephus who wrote in the first century, and also things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things we've unearthed that have given validation to the times in which these things have taken place. Jesus is not a myth. He's a real person in real time. And today we're going to look at his life in real time in three units. The first unit will be the family years, the ages of birth, 0 to 12, and the years of his natural family and his faith family. And then we're going to look at um, the time of his own developing faith, his own faith from the years of 12 to 30. And then lastly, we're going to look at the fulfillment times and the future vision cast between his ages 30 to 33. So we're going to spend most of our time with Luke, as I said, and a little bit about Luke. Luke is a contemporary of Paul, contemporary of Jesus as a result, written in about 60 AD, so after Jesus' time. But um, 
with eyewitness um, contact with those who were with him. But Luke is not a disciple. In fact, he was not even a Jew. He's a Greek uh, doctor. And so he, in his, uh, in, in his um, desire to have us understand what has taken place, has written what he calls, um, well, I'll just read it to you, Luke 1, uh, 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning, there's a timestamp, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have de delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He's writing this to a person or a people group, Theophilus, which means lover of God. So that includes you and me. So we can say Luke has given us a, an orderly narrative, orderly in order of time, so that we can understand a little bit more about how things unfold for Jesus and, and how they will unfold for us in the fulfillment of time. So the topic of this conversation is the fulfillment of time is Jesus. And just as a reminder, the answer to every question at Bible study is Jesus. So if you want to know who's the fulfillment of time, it's Jesus. Let me set about uh, pr proving that to you again. So Luke begins with a timestamp in Luke 1.5, the beginning of it. He, he starts with, in the days of Herod the Great of Judea. Later in Luke 2.3, he says, 2.1 through 3, he says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And then he mentions the governor of Syria, Quirinus. So again, we are given some historical references to set ourselves up for truth, which is unfolding in real time. He gives us the who and the what and the when and the where. Matthew's gospel is really rich about giving us the why. He also is telling the story of Jesus, of course. He tells us in Matthew 1, the purpose of his gospel is to save people, from, or the purpose of our Messiah is to save people from their sins, to fulfill what the prophets have spoken, to be with us, and to shepherd us. Both gospel authors give us a picture of who Jesus is in real time in the form of a family tree. Did you know that? I think if you look at the beginning of Matthew, you would know that for sure. It's part I often skip over. You know, Matthew's first words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Lots of words there. I often skip that. But did you know that Luke also has a genealogy? So you can find that in chapter 3. And I, wouldn't, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3 and look along with me. Because once again, there's a list of names. And it's an even longer list. So I thought, oh, are these the same thing? So I, you know, I brought a question up in my mind. So I compared them. And they're different. And they're a little bit challenging to compare. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I first noticed a, a difference in the very first generation when it said, who's the father of Joseph? Now, that set off a red flag for me. What is that all about, that there would be that much mistake that close to the story that we're about to tell? So I did some research on this. And this is what I found out. There are three basic things that are different about the genealogies that, are, that occur in Matthew 1 compared to Luke 3. In Matthew's version, he starts with Abraham and goes to Jesus. He starts with the covenant maker, Abraham. And what we know about Matthew is Matthew is of the Jewish people. So his identity would be with the covenant with the Jewish people, and he starts his story there. He starts from Abraham and goes to Jesus. Luke's version goes from Jesus to Adam and to God. And what we see about that, if you remember, Luke was a Greek believer. 
So Luke, not of the Jewish people, doesn't start with a covenant to the Jewish people. He starts with God himself and his first man, Adam. The Moody Bible Commentary says um, this is to show the universal relevance of Jesus for the entire race. It makes sense. A Gentile writer would write from this perspective. So they have a different perspective, and they start at a different place. And they also go in different directions. So as I said, Matthew starts with Jesus and goes backward to Abraham, and Luke starts in the present and go, no, I got that wrong, uh, starts with Abraham and goes forward to Jesus, and Luke starts um, from Adam. Well, I've, I've got, are you with me here? Luke starts with the present, goes to the past. Matthew goes from the past to the present. Well, you can look that up. Thank goodness you don't have to depend on me for that information. It's right there. And also they have a different parentage. So I told you, I saw the first uh, nuance difference uh, right after Joseph. And what I've learned from the scholars is that Matthew seems to track Jesus' legal status with his father. So legally, Jesus is the son of Joseph. And so Joseph's family is the one that Matthew is writing about. So it goes from Joseph's family, Joseph's father is Jacob, and so forth. Luke tracks the natural status from Mary, because as we know, Joseph is not the natural father of Jesus, God is. But Mary is the natural parent of Jesus. And so she, when we see the first name after in that lineage, we see the father being Heli, that's actually Mary's father. So we're tracking the line of Jesus up through the fathers on Mary's side, and that's why the difference is there. What's really important to see in that genealogy is that one thing coincides very easily, and that's David, King David. Both Mary and Joseph are related to King David, which means Jesus is a relative of King David on both sides of his family, and therefore fulfills the covenant that the Messiah would be from the line of David. So we can see, and we also know this about Luke, he probably got most of his information from Mary. And so it would make sense that he would be telling somewhat of Mary's side of the story. If you go to Ancestry.com and are, you're tracing your relatives, you have to make a decision, which track am I going to go on? And Luke takes us um, up the Mary track because it's the natural family line for him. So speaking of Mary, let's talk about some of her relatives. We know that Mary had a relative named Elizabeth married to Zechariah, and Zechariah appears in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Here it is. Again, a timestamp. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we've got a situation here set up in time, in the days of Herod, for many years, this righteous family doing everything right before God um, in real time are not having a child. So uh, God intervenes here in this family, and I'll read to you from Luke 1, through, 1, 8 through 20. This is excerpted. It won't be on your screen, but I'm going to read you from, from this section. You can follow along in your Bible. Now we're speaking of Zechariah. Now while he, Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the customs of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Here's a timestamp. While he's inside, at the very same time, people are praying outside. 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. It carries on. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Well, that's quite a message happening in the hour of incense. You can picture it. The incense, if you'll recall from one of our discussions before, is actually a visible symbol of our prayers rising up to heaven. So he, as his, he is of the line of Aaron, which is the priestly line. He does a turn in the temple. This is his turn in the temple while he's in the temple praying, and the prayers are rising up in the form of incense and outside people are praying and the prayers are rising up, the prayers get answered immediately. Here comes an angel right there and he gives him a future promise. And so what do you think Zechariah says about that? Well, here it is. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Do you hear the time? And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. We got a glimpse of disbelief, disbelief from an otherwise righteous man. It doesn't seem that far-fetched to me. It's the kind of question, though, that others would have wrestled with that Zechariah, as a priest, would have known about. Can you remember Abram and Sarah saying, how can this be? How will, how will this happen? Sarah laughing. Then they go around and try to make things happen on, on their own terms. Zechariah would have known this, and he would also have known that the consequences are not good for not believing God, but he, he did it. And this foreshadows something for, for us, too, that... Um, we'll learn about later, and I'm sure you've already heard about, is what Jesus later said to Thomas. When he, when he asked Thomas, he said, I will not believe until you show me the, the holes in your hand and in your side. He said later, Thomas, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So this contrasts very well with the acceptance of Elizabeth, his wife. We don't hear much about her in the early moment, but after these days, it starts in Luke 1, 24 and 25, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. And here's what she said. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach amongst my people. She is already counting herself as a promise fulfilled. Already even though not yet, contrast to Zechariah. And that is where our famous first birth stories, famous birth stories intersect. As we said, Mary and Elizabeth are relatives. Cousin is a word that is used in some, um, some of the scriptures. It's not exactly certain what we mean by cousin, but we know it means relative. And here Mary enters the picture in Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, which sixth month? Oh, the one we're referring to with Elizabeth. Remember, for five months she kept hidden. And in the sixth month, we're counting real time, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. 
and the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said this question to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? That's the second question we've heard. And the angel answered her with a, with a, a proposal, with a, with a plan. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called, the Holy, called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, Elizabeth and Mary meet up. Luke 1, 39. In those days, Mary arose and went to haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, as she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your, fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came into my ears, the baby in my womb lay, leaped for joy. And then she says this, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of that which was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary and Elizabeth have a belief that's rooted in the promise. And Mary sings a song of praise. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed, for he is mighty who has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And she is blessed precisely because of those words, let it be. And she believed even before seeing. So now we can contrast those two questions, the one of Zechariah and the one of Mary, the one that says, how do I know? And the one that says, how will it be? One is rooted in disbelief and the other is rooted in belief. One wants proof, the other wants process. And one is censured with silence and the other is, rejoy is rewarded with rejoicing. And what of Joseph, the silent partner? What did he say? We have no idea. There's not a word in scripture that he said. We hear about him, but we don't hear from him. Matthew 1, 18 through 25 gives us the most. It says, but as he, Joseph, considered quietly divorcing his betrothed, Mary, did he consider quietly or did he consider quietly divorcing? Either way, considered is an internal word. He considered quietly divorcing his betrothed Mary, an angel of the Lord confirmed the intention of God, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph also believed without seeing. 
That's a rich family. But Jesus wasn't just raised in a natural family. He was raised in a faith community. And we know this because we can see his, uh, the religious behavior of the faith community um, and their faithful obedience over time, beginning with his parents. We see him um, at the beginning of his, um, in, in Luke here, where uh, his parents are taking him to, um, to the temple for his, on the eighth day. Again, we have a time marker according to scripture and according to uh, obedience and to plan. They bring him for circumcision, purification. It's also called on the eighth day and they prevent present some sacrifices which are required by law according to having a firstborn and according to their means, as our author tells us about. And also we see them later adhering to the, the structures of the, of the religion um, when they are going every year to the temple at Passover. So every year and according to um, the, the religious ritual of their space and time, the family members, the community come around and every year they're doing these things. So we know he's not, he's not raised in a vacuum, he's raised in a family of faith. And those of us who are in a small group together know how important it is to be raised with those who encourages us encourages us, who can encourage us in our faith, even when we are in between times. I sometimes call it in the meantime. We need each other more in the meantime than in the time of rejoicing, I think. And so as he's going to the temple, he meets two important people, Simeon and Anna. Listen to Simeon's story. In Luke 2, 25 through 40, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple at that very same time when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And he took him up in his arms and blessed God and says, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And in that same time and space, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, a tribe of Asher, this is from Luke 2, verses 36 through 38. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow, she was 84. Look at all this historical time references we have. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So as a confirmation of their obedience, Anna and Simeon see the Lord's future in the present. And Ju Joseph and Mary returned to Galilee, and the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. We're going to move from eight days to 12 years. There's a gap there, and this is what we know. He grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. We do not know what that exactly looks like. We can speculate. But I would say God doesn't give us more information that we need that will take us on a track we don't need to go. And John 21 tells us there are many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we have to live in that space of uncertainty between what we know and what we, have yet, we will yet know in eternity. Maybe that will be one of your questions. What kind of kid was Jesus? I'll let you ask that question. So then Jesus comes into a faith of his own. This is the second part of his life that we're going to be talking about, age 12 to about 30. And there's not much written there either. Luke tells us this. 
in Luke 2, 41 through 52. Now his parents, Jesus' parents that is, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, another time reference. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Listen, after three days, three days, that's a big time marker. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And young Jesus, sitting in the temple, looks up at him and says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? At 12 years old, Jesus is indicating that he understands his role and that he's going to continue to, we know he's going to continue to develop his readiness for this role in these quiet years to us, 12 to 30. Not quiet to he and God. This brings to mind something that is a 20th century um, custom in the Jewish faith, which is a bar mitzvah. This actually, there were no bar mitzvahs at the time of Jesus, but... Um, if you know anything about it, you know that uh, a young man at age 13 makes his declaration of his faith by reading from the prophet Isaiah in the temple from memory, among other things, has a great deal of religious training up until that point where we say he makes his bat mitzvah, he makes his declaration of faith. Prior to that, one year prior, starting at age 12, he's studying. And at the time he's ready to make his declaration of faith, he comes to the temple ready, and, and it's, a, it's a rich and wonderful ceremony. I've been able to um, attend a bat mitzvah, uh, that's the, uh, the girls. If, uh, in, in the case of a bat mitzvah, a girl actually achieves this a year earlier because her maturation is earlier, and, the, and the, um, they allow her to uh, graduate into her own faith at, that, at the age of 12, not 13. But it would have been at 13 that most of us understand ourselves to be coming out of childhood and into adulthood, for, for better or worse. So here's Jesus. We don't know what he's done between the ages of 12 and 30, but we do know that he started by saying, this is where I'm going to put my intensity and my time. And then we meet him in this third segment of his life at age 30. And Matthew tells it well in Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately... He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Present tense. Now this, of course, opens up the pathway to Jesus' bold future and the start of his public ministry. Luke tells us he began his ministry at 30 years of age. Matthew, Mark says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is the fulfillment of time. He said it himself. Now I am. This is. This is the time fulfilled. 
And he never said it more clearly than in the Gospel of Luke when we read in verse 4. I love this. Chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Jesus starts his ministry at the altar, at the, at the podium, with the, with the scriptures before him. And he says this. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the fulfillment of time. We don't have as much information as we would like, but we do have as much information as we need. And so the story of our salvation is this. It's already accomplished, but it's not yet fully realized. Already and not yet. Fulfilled in the ways Jesus said, I've come to let, set the captives free, but not completely realized. But it becomes realized in each individual life after each new birth. We, we awaken to the story of Jesus in our life, in our history, in our real time. And like Zechariah, we can ask these questions. How will I know? And plenty do. How would I know? Or we can be like Mary and we say, just tell me how to do it. Let it be and tell me how it will be. Or we can be like Elizabeth. How is it that I? And the answer, which is hard to understand and remains the same for all time and all people, is this. Nothing will be impossible with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help me to say, let it be. Help me to believe without seeing. Help me to know that your promise is true and it is unfolding and to wait for it patiently. Help me to be like Mary, like Elizabeth, rejoicing in song for what is now and what is fulfilled and what is yet to come. And I ask this for me and for my sisters. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.